You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. If you have a Bible, please turn, if you haven't already, to Psalm 18. And we're going to look at that this morning. In 2018, I don't know if you remember this, it was a news event. There was a group of around 13 Indonesians who were all on the same soccer team. And after their soccer practice, they all were going to go to one of the players' homes for a birthday party. It was his birthday. His parents had made like a SpongeBob Square pants. Is that what they call it? I've been out of that stage for a while. Okay, a SpongeBob cake, and everything was ready for them. And before the party, the boys all wanted to go caving. There was this massive cave system that's really nearby, and they'd done this so many times before, and they would actually go to a spot in the cave, and they would all make kind of markings on the wall. It was almost like a little bit of an initiation thing for being a part of the team. And so they're like, okay, on this special day, on this birthday, let's quickly go do this one more time before the party. And they obviously didn't kind of add it all together, but it had been raining a lot over the last few days, and all of the rain in the tropics was slowly obviously coming down the mountains and was filling up the rivers and the lakes, but it was also going right into the crevices of into the caves. And so as the boys went in, they were able to get past like a bunch of different sections they were used to going into, but what they began to notice was as they were going deeper into the caves, water was filling in behind them. And it got to a point where they were no longer going deep in to discover the cave, but they were going deep in because the waters were rising up behind them and they needed a safe place to actually survive. Eventually they came to a spot within the cave. It was really deep in, I don't remember how far, but really far into the cave, further than they had ever been before. And they were kind of stuck on this ledge surrounded by water with nowhere to go. And in the BBC, they give this big article and explain all that had happened. At one point, the BBC article says this, it was dark, but they had their torches, that's the British way of saying their flashlights. There was also enough air for a while because of the porous limestone and cracks in the rocks meant that air could come through. They had the right conditions to survive at least for a little while, And most importantly, the wild boars, which is the name of the team. There's no wild boars in the cave. The wild boars had one another. Now came the hardest bit, hoping for rescue. They had no other recourse at that point. There was nothing else that they could do. It was to wait and to hope that somebody somehow would come to their rescue. This morning we're looking at Psalm 18, which is a psalm of rescue. If you see in your Bible, I don't think I included it anywhere in a slide, but before verse 1, there's this, what they call a superscription, which is a description of a little bit of a context. It's often an instruction for the person who's leading the song. And this says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So this is a song about David's rescue. So this morning, we're going to do three things. We're going to take a quick 
look at the psalm. We're going to take like a skipping stone and just kind of throw it across and kind of stop at certain parts because it's 50 verses, okay? And we're not going verse by verse through 50 verses on Father's Day. We are not going to do that, okay? But we're going to look just at the chunks of the passage and get a sense of what it's saying. And then we're going to look specifically at what is the point of this psalm? What is David actually driving at? And then lastly, how does this psalm connect to Jesus? And how do we make that connection for us? Okay? So, if you have your Bible, let's throw our stone and skip it across this amazing psalm and look at some of the details. In the first three verses, which we just heard read, but we're going to read them again here, we see that David begins by throwing out all kinds of metaphors for us to think about. Look at verse 1, 2, and 3. It says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. David throws out all these metaphors, all these pictures, these word pictures for us to understand, mostly around this idea of a fortress or a stronghold. Now for, for most of us uh, modern Western people, we think of like fortresses or a stronghold. Those are like places where we go to visit. They're like museums, right? We go into, maybe if you're in Europe, you go into a castle and you like look at this place where people lived. Well, in the ancient Near Eastern world, fortresses and strongholds meant survival. If you didn't have a wall around your city, or if you were living out in the fields, or if you were in a distant place, you were really at the mercy of whoever was out there and whatever elements were going to come up against you. And so David says, God, you're like my stronghold. You're like my safety. You're like my shield. You're like something that I can go into and I'm safe and secure. But these are just metaphors, right? God is not actually a castle on the hill. God is not actually like a shield that you hold up. Those are images that David is using, and he used a whole bunch of them to try and get us to understand that when God actually provides safety for David, be it through wisdom or maybe through some circumstances or through the provision of people, uh, David is saying those things, those real-time actions in our lives are actually God, a refuge, a fortress. God is active in our lives and he's doing things around us, maybe even things that we wouldn't understand or even attribute to God at different times. A few months ago, I received a letter from a missionary who told this amazing story of Christians in, this was taking place in Papua New Guinea, who were living in, in a village. And one night there was like this massive party and a bunch of like drunk people came into town and they, they started a fight and they beat up somebody and just like left the guy for dead and he was wounded really seriously. So the, one of the believers actually came out and saw this man laying there and he came out and he tried to help the man and ultimately got the man to a hospital. But the man from his wounds ended up dying. And so this Christian, whose name was Ben, came back to his village. And while he was away, talk went around that 
this believer, Ben, had actually caused this man to die. And it just caused this huge ruckus that people came along and burnt Ben's home and the surrounding homes around him. Completely burnt them to the ground. And so the missionary, getting in touch with Ben and hearing about this, was expecting to hear, like, anger, like massive disappointment at how this could actually happen. Like, what is God doing here? Our homes are burnt for doing something good to someone. But here's what Ben said to the missionary, and I'll just read it from what he says to stay accurate to it. He says this, You won't believe the miracle that happened when they burned down our village. It was so amazing. When I got back to the village and looked at all the destruction, I saw that our houses were all burnt to the ground, nothing but ashes. But when I looked around where my house was, there in the middle of all the ashes was my traditional string bag called a belum. It was the only thing that didn't get burned. Can you believe it? And guess what was inside of it? It was the Bible and the lesson book that you gave me a few years ago, perfectly intact. Not damaged in the least. In the middle of all those burnt ashes, God's word and those lessons were the only things that survived. And when I showed it to the people, they cried. They said it was a true miracle from God. And now we have something to tell people about the enduring quality of God's word, he said. Ben is uttering what maybe we would subtly think, or definitely people in our society would think is kind of foolishness, right? Like, that's kind of foolishness. Everything is burnt away. It's a terrible situation. Ben, here's your moment to complain. You can do that. But Ben in the moment actually glorifies God and says, God is actually doing something here. God has, for them, in that moment, preserved his word so that they can cling to it. And Ben is actually articulating what David is saying in the psalm here. God, you're my refuge. God, all the things that are happening around me, there's craziness, but you are my refuge. You are purposefully working through things, good things and terrible things. But David moves on from there in this kind of general sense of how God is acting. He then goes on in the next section to to imply that God is actually actively at work in what he's doing. If we would have time, we don't have time, obviously, to read verses from verses 7 all the way to verse 19. Let me just read a couple here, verses 17 and 19. He writes this, He, God, rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Verse 19, he brought me out into a broad place and he rescued me because he delighted in me. And in all the verses leading up to that, David is describing God as physically manifesting himself in different ways. If you look at the text, he talks about hailstones coming and he talks about flashes of lightning and he talks about thundering from the heavens. These are what scholars call theophanies, where God who can't be contained by anything, comes down in forms of some way. And in the Old Testament, it's all kinds of different forms. Obviously, in the New Testament, we see Jesus, who's there before us. But in the Old Testament, God comes in all kinds of different ways. He's represented by smoke, by different people or beings. 
in, in Genesis 12, when God is talking to Abraham, it just says this, then the Lord appeared to Abraham. That's all we get. No description. But God, David is saying in Psalm 18, is showing up. He is manifesting himself in some way. He is becoming present and active in the outworking of David's life. And David says, that's part of my rescue story, that God is active. When we come to the middle section, verses 20 to 29, David gets us to think about his character interacting with God or with Yahweh. Look at these verses, verse 23. I was blameless before him and kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord, there's your point right there. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Verse 26 then says, with the purified you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. Okay, this is not the only time where you read a verse maybe that you're like, what is that about? How does verse 26 fit into God's character and who he is and what he's doing? But David here is pointing out that God's character is also active in his rescue, that God is doing something. And in these verses here, even in verse 26, that God is still ultimately good, but is working out his purposes so that David will succeed, so that God will be glorified through David's work. Allison Ruth Gray, who's a theologian, kind of hones in on verse 26 and says this, Yahweh's response to the king and actions on his behalf are framed and justified in terms of the concept of lex talionis, the law of retaliation. They, sh they being David's enemies should not expect him to telegraph his plans and purposes. So even though God is good and God is righteous, Allison is basically saying God is still dealing with people in terms of enemies and warfare. And so if they're going to come up against God, then God is going to act according to them in this battle, per se. And she goes on to say their only hope is to repent in their rebellion to wave the white flag or surrender and bow the knee to Yahweh as king. God is king and is working. And David is pointing to that end. David is saying God is working through all these different circumstances. He is the king. In the next section, David is pointing to how God has conquested and God is the victor but he points specifically to the word of God look at verse 30 this God his way is perfect the word of the Lord proves true he is a shield for those who take refuge in him David is reminding us that God's word is trustworthy the word of God as it's revealed to us is something that we can go to and we can hold on to and we can trust in. The Bible, over time, the scriptures that we have here, over time has proven itself to be trustworthy, to be good, to be something that brings life to people. 
But it's also, if we're honest, something that confuses a lot of us, right? There might even be verses in here in this psalm that are kind of confusing and we're not sure where to put them. It's also been a word that has caused people to do some really terrible things over the centuries. It's changed as we have taken it from its original languages and we've translated it into all kinds of different uh, languages and different translations, but ultimately the meaning of it and the meaning that God has revealed to us has not changed. It has, and the first is this, that the Bible can be and should be tested. Okay, the, the Bible itself even says that when it comes to revelation from God. In 1 John 4, 1, John writes this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John says, what you hear from God, the revelation that comes to you from God, you should test that. Don't be afraid to test it. Look at it. Dig in. See, what is it that's being said to me? But secondly, it's good to remember that Jesus himself believed in the Bible. There's a lot of different verses that we can look at, look at that, that reveal Jesus' perspective and his understanding of the scriptures. One that I just pulled out was from Mark 12, 35, where he's specifically talking about the Psalms. He says this, And Jesus answering began to say as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? And then verse 36 says, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So David is saying, and Jesus is affirming that what he says is actually from God. It's from the Holy Spirit. The things that have been revealed through David to the Psalms are from God. So we should test and see what is it that God has revealed to us. And we should look at Jesus' life and see what did he think about the Old Testament and about God's revelation. Peter Williams in his little booklet called Can We Trust the Gospels, which is a, it's a great little booklet kind of explaining how we can see the four Gospels and understand them. He writes this, The Gospels, or perhaps the Biblical Psalms, are the most documented texts from antiquity by some margin. So we've got the most copies of them out of any other literature from ancient, techn or from ancient writings. They are also arguably the most scrutinized texts. So Christianity is and should be very open to people looking at that, analyzing the Bible, seeing is this really what God has said to us? And that's actually happened over the centuries, that people have actually done that. And so David's conclusion, and this may not be your conclusion, but David's conclusion in Psalm 18 is that God's word is trustworthy. That in the difficulty of his life, if he wants a source for wisdom and for speaking into his life, it's God's word. And then finally, verses 49 through 50, David praises God. He says, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. David praises God. So what is this psalm about? What is this psalm pointing to? 
We just like quickly went over some sections in it, but there's 50 verses. This is one of the largest psalms in the book of Psalms. And so how do you kind of synthesize it down to what David is talking about? And to do that, we're actually going to look at something maybe most of us don't see when we look at the text. And that is what Hebrew scholars called and still call chiasm. Okay, chiasm. It is a structure to Hebrew writing that helps and helped Hebrews to memorize the scripture, but also to make sense of it. So the word chiasm is actually coming from the Greek alphabet. The letter that we would call X is chi. And so this is literally X marks the spot. Okay, when you think of chiasm or chiastic structure, X marks the spot. And what I mean by that is I think I have an example up here that we can look at. The structure of the Psalms actually builds towards something. So in chiasm, you will have parallel meanings that kind of build in towards the central point of the Psalm. So at the top and the bottom, at the beginning and the end of the Psalm, you'll have a similar idea. And then you have a same kind of parallel meaning building its way in, ultimately bringing it to the X part, which is in the middle which is the point of the psalm. Now, why would they do that? Partially for memorization, because most people were memorizing the scripture and they were taking it with them, but also partially to help drive to the point of what the psalm is all about. Now, there's times where chiasm or a chiastic structure is overdone, like people see it in so many places and maybe it's accurate or not accurate, but in a large psalm like Psalm 18, it can actually be helpful for us. It points us in the direction of what is the point of Psalm 18. And at the center of this psalm is David's acknowledgement of God working in his life, but ultimately that it is God who is the point. There's some psalms where it's really easy for us to see that David is the big idea here, or maybe that God wants to provide something for us, and we, we take it home, and maybe we have like mugs about it, or we got blankets. Those are like the easy ones that we take. Psalm 18 is a psalm that says, this is all about God. All the things that are happening in my life are pointing to God and his working in my life. And so David is structuring it specifically to get us to think about God as the center of our lives, God as our Savior, and God ultimately as the center of the universe, everything that is happening around us, that God is the driving idea. Many of you probably have heard the line by A.W. Tozer that says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the reason is because it will actually affect our lives. What we believe about God, what we see as true about God, will affect the very decisions that we make. I can remember being a young teenager, and we were at my grandmama's house. She's Quebecois, and I think it was like Christmas or maybe Thanksgiving, and so the kitchen was just buzzing, right? And I can't remember if she asked me to help with something or if I offered to help. Let's just say that I offered to help, okay? Um, And so I was going to do some cabbage shredding, probably for a coleslaw or something. And so she had this like little tools, like an instrument like this big, where you take the cabbage 
and you go down like this, like a shredder, is that what it's called? You do that and then the cabbage shreds. But on this thing, you've got blades going this way and then it had like eight blades that were vertical, these little tiny ones that you would take it down. And so her last words to me were, be careful. She might have said it in French too, okay. Be careful, those things can cut you. And in the moment, I think I was like, sure, I'm dead. nothing's ever going to, in my mind I'm thinking nothing bad is ever going to happen. So I start shredding. I'm guessing about three shreds in, I forgot about the blades, and boom, right through my thumb, okay? And I still got the scar, the three scars to prove it, that I didn't believe actually what my grandmama told me, okay? But ever since then, Anytime I shred anything, even shredding cheese, I think about my thumb and I think about my grandmama, okay? Because the reality of what she said has obviously come home through experience. What if you and I fully believed that God was real? Like just imagine for a moment that you could put aside any doubt that you have, you could put aside any like things that hinder you from that, what if you fully believed in who God was and you knew him unfiltered? What would your life look like? And what would my life look like? It's probably hard to even imagine that. But what we know from our practical lives is the things that we come to learn and believe in, whether it's a cabbage shredder or the life that we live, what we know and believe in actually affects our choices and our decisions on a very practical level. And so the psalm here is pointing us to God as the ultimate reality in this world and to knowing him and to putting our trust in him. And when we do that, the daily things in our lives actually are shifted. They're actually altered because God is the driving force behind them. So David says, what you need to take away from this psalm, the point, the big idea, whatever it is, is God is at the center of this world and we should and we can know him and draw close to him and learn about him and discover him, primarily through his word, but also through the other gifts that he gives to us in this life that we live and even when we come to verses and to texts in the scripture that we wrestle and we struggle with. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, quotes Romans 11.22, which says this, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. Then Packer writes, The Christians at Rome, who the book was written to, are not to dwell on God's goodness alone, nor on his severity alone, but to contemplate both together. Both are attributes of God, aspects, that is, of his revealed character. So when Jesus says in the Gospels that he is the I am, he's saying the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus that you see walking around is the same God. And when you read both those, most of us probably struggle to put that together. How is it that Jesus looks so good and loving in the Gospels, and then we read Old Testament stuff and we're like, I don't know what to do with that. Jesus is saying we're the same, 
Paul is saying you need to wrestle over that. And then Packer is reminding us again, those two things must be contemplated together because we need to know the totality of who God is. And so Psalm 18 is reminding us that God through Jesus is the center of our being, the center of our lives. So to kind of wrap it up here, how does Jesus connect to this psalm? How do we see Jesus and this psalm together? In this psalm, David almost sounds like a, like a mythical hero. You read some of the things that David writes and you're like, this guy should be like in a Marvel movie or something. Like look at some of the verses here. In verse 29, he writes this, For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I will leap over walls. Verse 33 He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Verse 37. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me and those who hated me I destroyed. David comes out looking like the guy who can handle anything. He can bend bronze even apparently. Now is that just like hyperbole? Is that just storytelling? Is it like myth? What is that? The interesting thing is this psalm comes to us straight out of David's own narrative of what his life is like. If you look at 2 Samuel 22, there's almost an exact copy of this psalm right in the story there. And in 2 Samuel 22, we get a glimpse of David's life and all the battles as Saul is like pursuing him and all the difficulty in his life and what it actually says, what like the reality of David's life looks like is it says that David grew weary and it says that David needed other valiant men to come and do some um, warfare for him and it ultimately says David actually eventually was told by his men to kind of like stay home, let us do the battle. That doesn't line up with what we're seeing of David describing himself in Psalm 18. So there's like some dissonance here. What what is actually happening? And what we see is actually that this psalm is pointing through David to a greater David. This psalm, through David's story, is getting us in our imaginations to see that there is someone who is in the line of David who would actually accomplish everything that David couldn't accomplish. And that future new David is actually Jesus. That's our connection to Jesus himself. The battles and the the destruction that David needed and in our own form that we need is actually going to come to us through Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, the Christmas story that we're so familiar with, Gabriel comes to Mary. And when Gabriel comes to Mary, he announces to Mary that through Joseph, a king would be born. And Joseph would also get this message. Now think about it. Joseph 
was going to be a new dad. This is Father's Day, right? Joseph, a new dad, probably had like hopes and dreams for what he was probably hoping would be a son. Maybe he had hoped for a son to be able to take over the business, right? He's a self-employed carpenter, so he's like, I could really use a son to like help me as I grow older, and then eventually he can take over the business and just move forward. Joseph, no doubt, had dreams for Jesus. And yet, in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel comes, again, to Mary, but speaks about this one who had come in Joseph's line, and he says this about this one who had come, this Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. See, David was a great king, but he wasn't a king that lived forever. David's, eventually his life ended and he was buried and put in the ground. But Jesus now, Gabriel is saying, is the new David. The David who will go on forever. The David who will free us from all the things that hold us down. From the very sin that we were just confessing about and that we've been singing about. The one who could only accomplish that wasn't David in Psalm 18, but it was the one that Gabriel told Mary would come through her and through Joseph who would sit on the throne of David. Jesus, the greater David, would accomplish this. After about a week the boys were still in the cave. It's about seven days, sitting on a ledge there. Their torches or their flashlights were drained of all energy, gone. They were sitting there. They were meditating to conserve energy. They were just relaxing. They had no idea that people were searching for them. Two British scuba divers were looking, and they would come to different pockets in the cave, and they would poke their heads up, and they would call out, they would flash their light around, and interestingly, they would smell, okay? That was like, I guess, something that really was helpful. They would smell. And on this July 2nd, the two British divers poked their heads up and flashed around, yelled out, and smelt, and two boys came over the ledge and showed their faces, ultimately discovering that all 13 of the party were there discovered, and thus began the great extraction of these boys, which probably you've all heard about and remember vividly, as it was just gripped the world, right? And the story of those boys is very much the description of the story of all of us. People in this world, lost in darkness, as the Bible describes it, unable in any way to rescue ourselves. And Jesus, even though all of God's word is about him. All of the universe and God's created world is all about him. Chose to come after us. To live out the rescue plan. And to save us from our own sin. From the sin that we were born into. That, the sin that we live out. All of our trust and hope in our, our jobs. And in the success of our lives. The money that we have. The passions that we have. All those things that kind of like drift away over time, the confidence that we have maybe in our Western democracies and in the, 
the structures of the world around us that we've seen shaking during the pandemic and in a war in Europe. All those things are fragile and temporary. And our rescuer says, I'm coming for you. And he came on the cross so that our ultimate rescue could be accomplished by him. Not through anything that we do, not through anything that we could accomplish, but only through Jesus Christ. And so our word hopefully is David's first verse where we just end up saying, I love you, Lord, my strength. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for rescuing each and every one of us. Thank you for the provision of Jesus on the cross for us. And we thank you for this psalm, David's psalm, that reminds us of the focus of this universe and the focus of our lives needing to be on Christ. So Lord, would you remind us of that again and give us a confidence in you. And if we've never put our trust and our faith in you, I pray that today we would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.